0: Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. The family of uh, long dead mobster Rocco Perry says that the federal government is withholding information that would get them the bootleggers' lost fortune. Now, this is a search that has gone as uh, high as uh, Prime Minister Trudeau's office before being returned to Canada Revenue Agency. Uh, and and some of the family members that are are doing this right now are suggesting that the, the federal government is dragging their heels on this. There's a lot of interesting twists and turns. Uh, as there always is when we start talking about organized crime and, and uh, some of the participants, especially here in the Hamilton area. Joining us to talk about this is uh, Peter Edwards. Uh, Peter wrote the piece that's in the Toronto Star today. Peter, of course, is a author of a number of books about organized crime, uh, not just here in the Hamilton area, but uh, right across the country. Uh, and uh, always a welcome guest here on the Bill Kelly Show on CHML. Peter, thank you so much for the time. It's good to have you with us today. Oh, thanks for having me, Bill. This guy, Rocco Perry, uh, uh, for those that may be relatively new to this city, uh, has has a a, a a great big role, of course, in in the history of organized crime. He was uh well, the whiskey king, the king of the bootleggers, a number of different nicknames, and 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 it really not just, of course, of of the history, but of the I guess of the the lore of organized crime in this community.
1: Yeah, he um, he worked with Al Capone. I mean, he worked right at the top level. He uh, started off uh, quite poor and, and quickly became a very rich guy. He lived on. Um, on Bay Street South, um, there's a, a white apartment building there now, it's around, I think, 200 Bay South, um, near Robinson, I think, and um, so he did very well. His wife got murdered, she, she was older, she was um, um, uh, quite a bright person, so there was a, a lot of interesting things. The the murder, The um, uh, he did speak to the press once and um, and said that he's providing a public service and that he's not really a
0: criminal. There's so many different stories about this, and I know you've written extensively about this, and and, and boy, you talk to a lot of folks that have been in the city for a number of years, Peter, and they've all got Rocco Perry stories about uh, something going on in the North End. Uh, you know, I, I I talked to some folks that grew up down in the North End, uh, down uh, by Robert Street and Mary Streets, and uh, they said, yeah, you know, when we were kids, we used to, you know, we get paid a nickel or something to go and load the boats at night, and that was the liquor that was going across the uh, the, the lake over to, of course, to Chicago, to Capone's place. So the, all these stories are, are, are part of the great lore that's going on. But this is a guy that really had a stranglehold on, on, the, on the business, especially during prohibition.
1: Yeah, it's funny too, because one story I heard from a, um, an elderly woman quite a while ago was that when she was young, Rocco Perry pulled up in his um, limo and he rolled down the window and he told her to take off her makeup, that she was an Italian girl and he thought she had too much makeup on. And she said he said something like, "This time I won't tell your parents. Next time I will." <laughs> and so, and she remembered that sort of in an odd, kind of fond way about him. Um, but he he really was a big deal money wise. I mean, the prohibition was um, uh, you know the the booze for the states was coming from here, and um, he he was the the key one.
0: It, was that his his rise to prominence? Is that how he got a, the foothold that he had here in this community?
1: Yeah, and that's pretty well the big thing that he did. Like he didn't. He wasn't um, into narcotics, or he um, he wasn't doing some of the stuff like extortion as much. When, once the boost um, started, then that was what he did. It, that kept him more than more than busy. And there were um, there were quite a few rivals. There were he had to keep his head up to I and mean, people were getting shot in that business. And he he himself vanished in 1944, like he was visiting a relative at um, 49 Murray Street West, and he went for a walk in the morning and just never came back.
0: Which is it, one of the the main concerns here, I guess, what, that the family now his his, his uh, descendants, I guess, are, are having right now, uh, is is exactly what happened that day. I mean, I, and you've written about this, and and again, that's I guess part of the lore of, of Rocco Perry. Did he did, was he killed? Some suggesting that his enemies caught up with him, and uh and, and as you wrote about in the piece in the Star today, you know, the, well, he's probably at the bottom of Hamilton Bay, but the family has another story, don't they? Yeah, the family says that he went
1: to. Mexico for a while, and then he went to Messina, New York, that he um, he died there in 1953, which would make him 65 at the time, that he was living under the name Giuseppe Portolese, and um, they say that he invested money in real estate and did really well in that, and so he had what was considered by them to be a, um, a legal fortune, you know, in the last nine years of his life.
0: Do, do, do you buy that? Do you think there's a, some legitimacy to their their, their claim? Um, yeah, I, I kind of,
1: I, I lean that way because I think if he had been killed, probably someone would have said something. I mean, a lot of times when, um, you have three or four people in on a, on a plot, one of them gets pinched for something and decides that he doesn't like his friends as much as he thought and starts to squeal on him to, to get off. And so I think there's somehow plus it would have been a career case for a cop to, um, to catch somebody. So. My my gut feeling is that he um, he slipped away. But there was a smart time to go. I mean, things in Hamilton weren't what they were, and he had um, a lot of good connections.
0: Well, and as as you mentioned, I mean, the, the, there was the the murder of his wife uh, Bessie, who was who was shot and killed. Of course, uh, it was in the garage of that house on Bay Street, wasn't it? Um, yeah, she
1: and she was older. She was kind of outspoken, and I think. There was some suspicion that it might have even been Morocco's um, group that did that one. That they resented um, being bossed around by by a woman, especially a non Italian woman. And um, uh, so there there was that. There there was um, she, she was pretty um, pretty strong in her own right. And so um, there might have been been some of them just trying to get it back to being a boys club and they didn't they just didn't want to be bossed around by Bessie
0: anymore well that was part of the, con- the concern i guess in some of the questions that were raised at the time i mean he because uh, as i was told and i think one of the books that you wrote about this uh he was there when she was shot and killed but he was not shot himself and people were starting to wonder well, wait a second if this was a hit how come he got off
1: yeah if you're a beatles fan she would have been in the yoko ono role okay when it broke, <laughs> up, the, when it broke up the group and so um you know, it, it doesn't really make sense, why wouldn't you kill Rocco? But if you wanted Rocco to get back to doing what he had been doing before Bessie, um, um, you know, took such a strong role, then then it made sense. You know, he, he grieves and mourns, and then he's got to get back to doing what he does. And so um, that, that would actually make sense.
0: So if you buy into what the family are saying here, uh, Peter... Uh, that, that he just disappeared and went as you mentioned to mexico and, and and started making money in in other endeavors uh it's it's a that's a rarity isn't it for somebody in organized crime to to just say okay I'm gonna pack it in and get out of here because it's getting a little too hot here
1: yeah he was a unique guy though I mean he married a um an older Jewish woman that he took a lot of um, advice from and um, even a bit of direction from that's a rarity too and so he um as much as he was an organized criminal, he did have um, a kind of a, a wider way of looking at things. Maybe that's why he was so good at what he did. Was that he was, um, you know, he wasn't just repeating what other people had
0: done. So, and again, to follow that storyline, so he leaves, he goes and in, in, to another part of the world, and, and ends up back in upstate New York in a small town. Uh, but apparently, uh, according to what the family told you, uh, he was very successful in legitimate business after that.
1: Yeah, and I would give him nine years, and then there would be a a fair bit of seed money. I mean, if he had planned it, if he had um, put some thought into what he's going to do next, then it wouldn't have really started. You know, when he went for the walk in 1944, it would have been um, building up to it. Um, It it was changing around here, too. Like, Buffalo was pushing in more. um, Drugs were coming in more. It was um, the early, early, early start of the French connection and the heroin roots, and so... Uh, maybe he just saw that um, you know his his time and that sort of stuff was up, and he wasn't really a tough guy. Like he um, uh, he was known for for kind of guile, not for for really really being tough. And so maybe he thought it was time to um, uh, just diversify and um, you know move away.
0: Well, he bragged about that, didn't he? Because you included a piece from what was called the Toronto Daily Star back in those days, where he said essentially that it says, "Look at my guys; don't even carry guns. We don't need that for what we do."
1: Yeah, and I don't quite buy that because some of his <laughs> some of his enemies were dropping dead of gunshot wounds, and so some, someone was shooting his rivals. But um, he, I think what he what he was suggesting, you know, I think he was lying to a point. well, really he was lying, but was that they're they're more brains than um, than violence, and that's why they do well. He, he also was trying to sell himself to the average person, like people who were buying alcohol illegally, but didn't want to think of themselves as criminals. He, I think he wanted to make them feel a little bit cleaner about what they were doing. He, he talked about how he gave his, his people um, high-powered cars. He said that is enough. If they cannot run away from police, then it's their fault. But guns make trouble, my men do not use them. And I don't buy the last line. I mean I I buy it right up to guns make trouble.
0: Well, I mean that was what a lot of the bootleggers did in those days, didn't it? Was essentially try to put themselves over as providing a public service. In other words, the government was was mean spirited by banning alcohol, but we're gonna give it to you anyway.
1: Yeah, and they didn't force it down anyone's throat. I mean people yeah. did pay good money for it and um a lot of mainstream people did. I, th- I think um, it is a good example of what happens when you try to get um, really moralistic about laws, and people don't really buy into them. Then you're creating a huge opening for people like Rocco.
0: I, I know we've talked about this in the past about uh, about art imitating life, and but uh, everybody, I guess, uh, uses the reference of the, of the Godfather, the movie The Godfather, uh, to talk about you know the organized crime and how it's organized and and how it would interact with other fr- crime families, etc. And, and I'm thinking, if that's the case, just to follow that metaphor for a second, this this is about the time where Don Corleone is being pressured to get into the narcotics and everything else. And I guess that would be Perry's uh, predicament at that time. I guess in his career, where he, and he guess maybe decided, I don't want to go there. It's time for me to move on.
1: Yeah, and if he had his ego in check, that he didn't need to boss people around, and maybe he didn't like. Um, you, you have to control a lot of. Um, tough to control people. It's kind of like herding sheep, you know, if, if sheep were, were violent animals. You know, like, they, bossing around criminals isn't always fun. And so maybe he'd made enough money and just thought, um, uh, you know, life's too short, I'm going to move on now.
0: Now, I, I know that you talked to a number of members, and, and the Perry family, the descendants, I guess, of Rocco Perry, uh, some are, I guess, over still in Italy, there are some in Australia, and some here in Canada, is that right?
1: Yeah, and the Australian ones, um, I, I talked to just for who is going to actually be quoted with a name. Like, I wasn't going to run a story without, um, you know, names and dates and uh, real people. So um, the Australians, they, um, they're the ones who step forward, but they're all saying the same thing. They're like the, the group that, I, they were t- kind of two factions of the Perry family, and the one that I hit was was Hamilton and Australia.
0: Did you get any sense at all about how much money we're talking about here? Uh, they talked about it as being
1: life-changing and huge, and... Uh, there was a franticness. I mean, I got a phone call yesterday, you know, from Australia. Someone just, you know, wins the story running? So there was a. Um, um, it, it's not five or six or seven figures.
0: Now, talk to us a little bit about some of the red tape that these guys are running into, because I find this to be a fascinating element to this. Because uh, you'd think, okay, this is a you know, this is supposed to be money that was uh, you know accrued for, for, through crime, but uh, they're they're maintaining, no, this was all legitimate business. Uh, and you would think the Canada Revenue would come forward on this, but they seem to be hitting some roadblocks.
1: Yeah, that's that's part of the story that I actually get a real kick out of, was that um, uh, Rocco's law-breaking and not paying attention to rules is now driving his family crazy because it makes it tougher to track down his money. Like, he he didn't bother with a social insurance number, and there was, there was no death certificate, that sort of thing. And so uh, now it gets really tricky to track him down. I mean, it's a safe bet that he's dead between... Um, the enemies he had, and he'd have to be 130 years old, so um, they, he's legally, he's been pronounced dead, and that wasn't a big fight, but um, a lot of red tape. Um, I think these people can prove they're descended from him. The trick will be, um, even if you do find a fortune, you know how do you prove it's legitimate? Although, on the other hand, um, they say that Canada Revenue has taken tax out of it, and that they have a source in Canada Revenue who told them that, and they're... Um, Pretty specific about it. So we Canada Revenue dipped in and took some of the money before they sent it to Italy. Then, by doing that, Canada Revenue is saying that it's legitimate money. I mean, you don't you don't take a chunk of criminal proceeds if you're the government. So, um, if Canada Revenue did dip in there, then then that's pretty good for these guys.
0: So, so the the, the, the Italian branch of the Perry family they they did get some money then. Yeah,
1: and they're pretty um,
0: apparently pretty
1: happy. And the Australian branch isn't too happy with with the Italian branch right now, and I, I think they're um, trying to jump in there, and they're not frantic, because if um, if they can prove that they should have gotten money, then even if the government gave it away too much to the wrong group, then they can they say, well, you've got more money, give us some of that, you know, that it doesn't have to be strictly Rocco money, it can be your and my tax money.
0: Is, is are, are there bank accounts here, Peter? I mean, where, is, is there, are these real estate holdings? What, what are we talking about here in the way of assets?
1: Um, with they're saying it's stuff in the in the states and Mexico. Um, there, some of it's pretty fuzzy with them too. Though the there, there is a date in um, uh, 2008 where they say money was transferred, and so if they're if I mean that would be the date to to build out around if um, they say November 27th 2008 that um, uh, money was sent to. Um, To the Italian government that was supposed to disperse it to the Perrys, and um, that they had dipped in and taken tax money out of it—it's that's all pretty specific—and that should be two level, two governments, like Italy and Canada. So, um. um, I mean it should be pretty provable if you just build out on that one date.
0: But I mean, if if their contention is, of course, that he he passed away from natural causes in 1953, I think was the number that uh, the date that you you mentioned in the piece today. Uh, why taking so long? Why is it? Why here we are in 2018 and they're arguing about this now?
1: Um, I think a, I think it's one of those things that just sort of festers. And then I, I think there was there was a letter written from um, New York State that. Um, that got people worked up, and so I think they've um, there have been three books on Rocco Perry, and I think whenever something gets written, people get, get worked up and start talking about, you know, didn't he leave some money? You know, what was there?
0: What about the Hamilton connection? I mean, I know he has descendants here in this area, too, still, doesn't he? Oh, yeah, yeah, he's got, he's
1: got some. Um, so they, they're, I mean, I talked to them, and I saw paperwork with their names on it, and they're... Um, so that that part I'm very comfortable with. They weren't. They didn't want to be front and center. Like I, um, they, there was one point where I um, I said if I if I can't get your permission for a photo, I'm not doing the story. And um, so I got the permission, and I, I didn't put them in there just because the, the guy in Australia was saying the same things, and he was um, more than happy to um, to talk away.
0: Where's this going to go? I mean, obviously, it, 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 a legal action. I know the lawyers are involved in this right now. Did they? Did they sue the Canadian government? I mean, this this sounds like it's going to get pretty complicated from a legal standpoint.
1: Uh, they say they've got a mole in that was in CRA, and so they they can get that person. If somehow there's some protection for that person, they can pop that person out. Then that should um, you think that would bring it right along? Um, you know, like they're they're saying they're giving dates, and it, it should. It, it shouldn't be a, like a great mystery forever if there actually is energy put in it. I, I don't think I'm screaming at the Prime Minister's office is going to do it, but I think if um, if they could get this um, mole to come forward, that would do a lot, or if they could get more um, specific stuff, um, you know, how is the money transferred, maybe which bank to which bank, or, you know, which exact time, something that um, they can... Um, right now, there's sort of a... You can. They're, they're arguing that there just isn't, where do we look, there isn't paperwork, but if they got really specific and gave a really tight timeline, I think it could be sorted out.
0: And, and I know what they're asking for here, and the, the sheriff of his estate is obviously is, is predicated on the fact that this is legitimate money made through legal you know, dealings as opposed to what he did. But he obviously must have had a pile of money from from the bootlegging and some of the activities he did here in the Hamilton Southern Ontario area as well. I've I, I got to wonder if some of the money they're talking about here is dirty money.
1: Oh, I think I think tons of it would be, but if they never caught them for it, and if they took taxes out of it, then they then the government sort of made it technically clean money because they they dipped in themselves. Like if then the family could argue that if um, if it's clean enough for the government, why isn't it clean enough for us? You know, if um, you know that you can't have it both ways, you can't tax it and say it's um, you know, and then transfer it over to Italy, and you know, governments get a chunk of it and they don't. Um, it is, you know, when you have a criminal who invests in a business, and, you know, at what point do you declare it clean? I mean, there's all sorts of businesses that are thriving that, um, if you look at the seed money, it wasn't very clean.
0: Well, and, and you've written stories about that among some of the other families, of course, that have done that. You know, whether it's uh, the olive oil business like the Corleone's or restaurants or any number of other things, they, they always have to have that, that vehicle, don't they, that they can run the money through.
1: Yeah, and then you, then you have to get into... Um, how many generations down the line do we just um, just drop it and say okay, it's clean now? Like you know, when um, you know if you, if you didn't catch him at the time of the crime, then two generations later, can you say it's still dirty money? Um, if, if the business is being run, um, you know, according to the law, even though it was started up um, illegitimately,
0: sounds like another book in the in the in the offering here, Peter. This is this is this is getting pretty complicated here. Yeah, he, uh, it he sort of.
1: I mean, I think we're at the kind of the fun stage, and I think the next um, the next one will be a fun one too. The um, um, kind of analyzing Rocco's investments in you know in Florida or something isn't you know that's too too deep for me. But um, this is fun right now. Just um, you know everybody fighting and um, and you know there's some truth in there, but you're trying to. It gets a little tricky figuring out exactly what it is.
0: Well, it's another chapter in, a, in a, the, the lore of, of organized crime here in the Hamilton area. It's a great read in the Toronto Star today. Peter, thanks as always. Great talking with you again today. Oh, thanks, Bill. I really enjoyed it. Take care. Peter Edwards, of course, uh, author of a number of books about organized crime, and uh, his piece in the Toronto Star today, Family of Long Dead King of Ontario Bootleggers Fighting for Control of the Money that Was Left Over.
2: You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show Podcast on 900 CHML.
0: We uh, have talked uh, at great length over the last number of months, of course, about the, uh, the death of Yosef Al-Hansawi. Uh, where he was uh, shot, as it turns out, outside a convenience store in downtown Hamilton. And uh, there was some concern at the time. You may remember the day after the incident, we actually had members of the family that were present at the time uh, that uh, expressed some concern about the, uh, the, the behavior of the two paramedics that actually, actually responded uh, to that incident. Of course, uh, Hansawi eventually died uh, not too long after that. Uh, well, uh, you know, of course, now that the criminal charges have been laid against those two individuals. Uh, yesterday, the city of Hamilton announced that the two individuals that have been charged have been fired. Well, this has uh, caused some pushback and some reaction uh, from uh, paramedics associations, not just here locally, but uh, on a national level. The executive director of Paramedic Association of Canada uh, believes that paramedics accused of malpractice should be judged by their peers first, not by the courts. Joining us to talk about this is Chris Hood, who is the president of Paramedics Association of Canada, uh, the member of the Regulatory College in New Brunswick. Chris, thank you so much for the time. It's good to have you with us on the program today.
2: Good morning, Bill. Thank
0: you for having me. Talk to us about the the procedure and the protocol that you'd like to see happen here. Uh, Because my understanding, Chris, is that it actually differs from province to province, does it?
2: It does. And so, you know, there are five provinces, Bill, across the country that have a self-regulatory college uh in paramedicine and uh, you know if we look at other healthcare professions uh in Canada and other professions in general uh you know we we think of uh, the big ones the college of physicians and surgeons or the college of nurses in Ontario uh they do things a lot differently uh than uh, do the paramedic practice in the province of Ontario and particularly around discipline and fitness to practice issues so uh, as you might be, you know, very much aware, the practice of paramedicine, like the practice of medicine, like the practice of nursing, is a very, very specialized and intricate uh, subtleties around practice and care and uh, and those types of things. So uh, in those situations, uh, it is best served uh, when issues related to malpractice or, or care or even, uh, even attitudes and, uh, and uh, people's reactions to, uh, to the patients are best dealt with first uh, by a regulatory college because of these intricacies where uh, the practice is judged by a body of their peers and uh, with public oversight. Uh, so that's, that's what we're promoting.
0: So walk us through a situation. I know New Brunswick, for instance, does have that, that protocol in place right now. How does that work?
2: So what happens in the province of New Brunswick or the other regulated health profession provinces uh, in paramedicine is that we would receive and do receive uh, professional practice complaints, uh, professional misconduct complaints about practitioners all the time. And so uh, we gather together evidence and uh, we present that evidence through a legal counsel in a quasi judicial process. It's not uh, it's not, a, you know, some kind of a cowboy type uh, operation. It's a uh, Evidence is heard. The rules of evidence are used. It's uh, done, uh, calling uh, witnesses, those types of things under oath, and uh, those are judged by uh, paramedic practitioners who have no, uh, you know, vested interest in the particular case. And there are always, and should always, be uh, public members of the public that are there to ensure transparency and accountability on behalf of the profession. In the protection of the public interest so we always do things uh, related to uh, this work keeping in mind that we're trying to protect the public interest now that doesn't mean that practitioners won't be charged with criminal offenses uh, but what it does mean is that before that happens and, and this is an unprecedented case before that happens Uh, the intricacies of practice, the intricacies of being a paramedic and working in a paramedic profession and dealing with, uh, those, uh, incidents such as, uh, you know, this particular unfortunate incident uh, are all well understood because the people that are judging them uh, are uh, used to those intricacies and the public is there to make sure the public member is there to make sure that everything's above board and things are done uh, in the pre- in the best interests of the public
0: sounds very much chris as, uh, what you 're describing is very much along the lines of what uh, what police uh, will do with I know here in Ontario anyway. Where there are oversight bodies uh, that are supposed to be independent, obviously, uh, that will do investigations uh, about any um, alleged wrongdoing or, or any anything, I guess, to do with policing issues and, and things of this nature. And, and as you say, it's it's not criminal court, but it is an oversight body that will rule on these situations. That's that's kind of what you seem to be describing for for what the paramedics are doing in five of the provinces already.
2: It is, and the, you know, as I said, though, I think the, the the key point on this one is that we're not saying that there aren't. Uh, situations in which paramedics or other healthcare professionals will be charged criminally based on, generally speaking, based on the results of those uh, quasi-judicial processes. So if the seriousness of the incident is such that a criminal charge is necessary, it will happen following that. Uh, but in this situation, uh, it appears like, uh, and, and I don't know the details of the case, but it really appears like uh, the intricacies of the situation and the details that are best judged uh in a quasi judicial process are going to be uh, litigated in a in a criminal court where the requirements are much different uh the people that are judging uh these practitioners uh have no uh you know no experience or uh or any uh uh sort of necessary uh, professional uh knowledge about the practice and the body of evidence that's going to be required to convict these people are such that uh, it's much different and a much higher threshold than what it would be in a uh, quasi-regulatory issue.
0: Now, the rulings by these regulatory boards, are they binding?
2: They are binding, uh, usually, uh, depending on the province, but I could speak to particularly uh, New Brunswick. The only way that the uh, finding can be overturned in the province of New Brunswick in regards to a, a regulatory college is through the Court of Queen's Bench, and that's only done on uh, legal procedure. It's not done on the body of the actual um, the actual evidence that was heard. So, uh, you know, it has to be a procedural fairness issue or a uh, a breach of uh, the rules of evidence or in uh, the fairness of law.
0: I, and what are I, I guess the the range of penalties? Uh, suspension? Uh, w- would they recommend firing I, for egregious issues? I I, I, know, I know we're kind of getting into the into the you know the the philosophical and the what if here right now, but but just how much power do these boards actually have?
2: The, these boards have a significant amount of power. Um, they don't get into the labor management issue, so the firing or not firing of a practitioner is not within the scope of these uh, boards. However. Uh, in order to practice paramedicine in the province uh, that is self-regulatory, you must hold a license to practice. So, essentially, if uh, if one of these uh, regulatory bodies took away the license to practice, essentially that means that they don't have uh, the qualifications to practice anymore. Therefore, uh, you know their employment would be uh, subject to uh, you know whatever whatever procedures were allowed for in in a collective agreement, but. The regulatory bodies have the right to do everything from require remediation to training to uh, written reprimands up to and including termination of somebody's license to practice. And I can tell you in our province uh, that has happened. We've got uh, we average about 20 uh, professional practice complaints a year. Uh, and only the most serious uh, get dealt with uh, through the uh, types of penalties, such as termination of licensure. Uh, but in this particular uh, calendar year, I could tell you we've had uh, three cases that uh, practitioners have actually lost their license to practice for a number of reasons, uh, some of which are criminal in nature uh, and have got moved forward to a criminal court following our procedures.
0: I, I know we can't talk about the specifics sp- specifics of, of, of what happened, of course, uh, in here in Hamilton, uh, Chris. But uh, I, and, uh, but I, just in a general manner, uh, were you surprised that these two individuals were actually criminally charged?
2: Uh, well, certainly, I think uh, I would say uh, without getting into the it, it seems
0: to be an unusual circumstance. I, I, I don't think I've ever heard of it before. Uh,
2: well, I guess I would say the the precedence uh, of uh, this particular case is uh, is really uh, sending shockwaves across the country, uh, and not just in the paramedic profession. If this is the standard of which. Uh, professions are being held accountable uh and i mean that from a procedural perspective um, i i can think of many 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 circumstances in uh in the medical practice in nursing practice in any of the uh you know 15 or 20 health professions that uh that the practitioners in those professions uh, should be sitting up and taking uh, notice of this
0: and again, like I say, I, I know we don't want to talk about specifics and can't talk about this because it's obviously going to go before the courts now with criminal charges that are coming out of here. But uh, if, in fact, there were a college in play here in Ontario, uh, as you've described it right now, would, would those uh, individuals, uh, those charges, uh, well, I, I guess if I'm asking, first of all, how the college would have dealt with this, would, qu- quite aside from how police are dealing with it.
2: Uh, my my uh, take on this is that the college would have dealt with as I described it, and that uh, in in all of the situations that I'm aware of in in Canada, in every other jurisdiction that I've uh, that I've uh, spoken to uh, different health professionals, uh, and uh, in legal uh, terms that uh, criminal charges would. If necessary, it would have been filed well after uh, the proceedings of the quasi-judicial regulatory body process would have been completed and, and finished.
0: Notwithstanding the fact that it's an independent investigation, it's not aligned with what the police are doing.
2: No, but uh, you know the, the requirements of, uh, of calling evidence uh certainly can uh, cross over and some evidence that gets called in uh, in the quasi judicial process uh, that a regulatory body would uh, undertake could actually be used in a criminal proceeding if necessary uh and and I think uh, from the, from a legal perspective uh there is a huge amount of value in allowing the people that have that detailed knowledge and understanding uh, to make those determinations of, of guilt or innocence, of, a, uh, of malpractice, malfeasance, those types of uh, issues before a criminal proceeding uh, ever, ever happened.
0: We are surprised that these two individuals have been fired. I mean, uh, I've heard some feedback on both sides of this issue over the last couple of days, obviously, Chris, here in this community. Uh, some are suggesting, well, you know, based on what we've heard, which is again something that we can't delve into too deeply at this stage. The other is, look at, I thought we were innocent until proven guilty in this country. Why would they actually get fired before that's actually been determined?
2: Yeah, and again, Bill, I don't know the details even of the case, so I'm, you know, there there could be a multitude of uh, of situations uh that uh i could think of that would cause uh, the actions of the employer to do what they've done uh but uh you know notwithstanding that i think uh uh that will be litigated uh, in a number another fashion in another uh you know another arena so uh, I can't begin to judge what the employer uh, in this situation did. Uh, they've got their reasons for doing so, and uh, and I don't uh, I don't begin to think I understand those. That's not my area of expertise.
0: Well, and I'm sure you are aware, of course, that Mario Posterero, the head of the union here locally, has, uh, suggested that he's going to grieve that the mo- the move by the city to to let these two individuals go. But and and as you say, there's a process for that, and I'm sure that'll unwind as, as in in the course of time as well. What does this message? What What kind of a message does this send though this activity and what's gone on here with criminal charges now being laid uh to other paramedics across the country and 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 i want to if you could answer that chris under the guise of what you just suggested with that knowledge of what the job entails uh as you say it's awfully hard for people that don't do that and don't walk in those shoes to understand uh the protocols that should be followed and 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 some of the the different circumstances that uh, that individuals that respond to calls are going to be facing well, I can tell you, Bill. In the
2: you know, if I was a paramedic in any of the other five provinces that don't have uh, self-regulatory status, uh, I would be uh, very cautiously uh, practicing. In fact, I would have to really reflect significantly on uh, on my uh, desire to continue to practice because, you know, uh, again, I don't know the details of this situation, but on the on the face of it, and looking at the media reports. Uh, And just thinking about, uh, you know, practice and and, uh, the intricacies of practice, good heavens could, uh, you know, could somebody uh, face this kind of serious incident uh, in in lieu of uh, a professional body such as a regulatory college dealing with it uh, and, uh, you know, depending on the outcome of this particular circumstance, uh, that can uh, that can have a significant impact on these people's lives in in the future. So, you know, uh, I think we all get into this profession to help the public, and I think uh, you know whether it's nursing, physicians, what have you, uh, it really should uh, it really should cause people to sit back and and reflect on uh, on on their. Uh, desires to practice in an environment where there isn't uh, these kinds of oversight systems in place to to help deal with these uh, these issues before it comes to a uh, a criminal proceeding. And, and I'd be the first to support uh, criminal charges and criminal uh, proceedings in situations where it's it's warranted. Uh, but let's uh, make sure. Uh, that these things are very much warranted before we uh, before we proceed and uh, in our opinion, uh, that is through using uh, these regulatory bodies uh, first and foremost before we get into the very 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 serious nature of uh, of uh, criminal charges
0: well and I'm looking at this in the context uh, actually Chris of well the police situation and and you know all about the debate that's because it's a national debate about street checks with police and, and and how some police have actually been brought up on charges to some of these regulatory bodies. And, and when I talk to some frontline officers, there, there's almost a reticence now to get engaged with the public at all, saying, look, I'm afraid to say anything or do anything now uh, because of the implications. Uh, you know, I thought I was just doing my job, but apparently... Uh, you know, they you know, they can make your life miserable if they just decide that they want to start, you know, pressing charges or, or making accusations and things of this nature. And I'm wondering if, if, if what could happen here, first responders are going to be in a similar situation where they're going to think, look, I don't know quite what to do now because of what might happen in Hamilton.
2: Well, and I would agree with you, Bill, uh, with the exception of uh, the difference, I think, between some of these police boards and what I'm talking about in a regulatory co- college is that uh, those police boards, generally speaking, are, are uh, oversight that is provided by somebody who is not a police officer, uh, who is not part of the profession. They're part of, uh, you know, the, the the public is there for sure. But certainly uh, in a lot of cases, their police boards are comprised of people within uh, wholly within the community that don't necessarily have. All of the uh, the expertise of policing and the intricacies of policing, and that's why I think it's so important that you have that mix of professionals that are within that same profession and in no way, shape, or form connected to the incident, but they're there as the resident experts and the you know subject matter experts in in dealing with the you know using your police example dealing with the. Uh, intricacies of uh, of the uh, you know the the police uh, interactions with the public in a stop and check or or whatever terminology you might want to use uh, and making sure the public oversight is there to make sure that everything's uh, you know is there to represent uh, protecting of the public interest.
0: Chris we know about the the extensive training that, that uh, these individuals go through before they actually get out onto the street and, and 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 start responding as first responders in situations like this but is there ongoing education about that about dealing with issues that will come up uh, hey this happened do you would how would you respond to this etc cetera, etc cetera. workshops those those sorts of things
2: so there are uh, a number of uh, situations where paramedics uh, like other health care providers uh, are required to do ongoing continuing education some of those are mandatory that are done within their their paramedic service uh, and speaking particularly about New Brunswick, uh, they do about, uh, I think it's around 100 hours of employer-provided continuing education a year. Uh, over and above that, the regulatory body requires 60 additional hours of ongoing continuing education that is self, really self-directed, that they can uh, choose their area of, uh, of, uh, of learning that they want to uh, choose based on what they perceive to be their deficiencies. Uh, so there's ample opportunity, and there are ample. You know, I know in our particular province, we provide annually uh, some of the latest uh, uh, changes in practice, and the latest updates in practice, and the latest updates in uh, in these quasi-judicial uh, processes for our practitioners to read about, uh, so that they can be well aware of what they're. Uh, what the requirements are and what the sort of uh, lay of uh, of practice is in uh, Canada and around uh, North America and around the world, for that matter.
0: Well, we'll uh, be watching, I'm sure you will too, as uh, this unfolds uh, and with great interest about uh, what's going to happen and the implications of it. Chris, I really do appreciate the time today. Thanks so much for this.
2: Bill, thanks for the opportunity. I, I
0: appreciated my time. Okay, we'll talk again soon, I'm sure. Chris Hood, President of the paramedics association of canada you're listening to the bill kelly show podcast on 900 chml issue between canada and saudi arabia seems to be spinning out of control we already know of course that the saudis have booted out the ambassador they're selling off uh, canadian assets uh they've called university students uh, to, to leave canadian universities and on and on and on it goes Joining us to talk about this is Elliot Tepper, Emeritus Professor of Political Science from uh, Carleton University. Elliot, thank you so much for the time. It's great to have you with us again.
3: Good morning, Bill.
0: Uh, Were you surprised, right off the top here about the Saudis' reaction to the tweet that uh, that seemed to have sparked this whole thing?
3: I'm surprised that it was at the top of reactions that a state could make to uh, what they perceive as a slight, to start at the very top by kicking out an ambassador, declaring the ambassador persona non grata, recalling your ambassador, is in diplomatic parlance, you know, really about uh, the, the highest level you can get. There's many, many other ways prior to that in which you could uh, carry on, uh, quiet diplomatic or even more public diplomatic spat. So, yes, I was surprised by that.
0: I, I guess this follow up question to that was you're surprised by the tweet uh, i mean is is this not something a criticism of of human rights, which is not unusual? I mean you know we've had previous discussions with the Chinese government with Saudis of course and and with other countries about this, but its it's usually done at the highest levels, not a tweet from a foreign affairs uh, representative and it wasn't even the minister really I think that initiated the the initial tweet
3: well the content actually of the tweet was um Normal in the, sen- in the sense that Canada and, you know, the United Nations has just now issued a very similar statement. Uh, it's a, b- a common complaint that normally is taken, uh, you know, in stride by Saudi Arabia and others against whom it's, it's uh, leveled. So uh, let's talk a bit about technology and international politics or, diplo- or diplomacy. So the first is Twitter. Uh, is Twitter really the best way to be carrying on international relations and diplomatic relations in particular? And the senior people in Canada who have been diplomats or come out of that uh, kind of a background have now come forward saying, look, Twitter is just a terrible way to carry on diplomatic relations. Normal, cautious, quiet, uh, alternative ways have been there, time honored. Uh, which uh, the logical response is yes but everybody's doing it and I would point out that Iran's supreme leader the Ayatollah is, <laughs> is on Twitter so it's hard to avoid you know, Twitter. So, is, so is
0: the guy in the White House too yeah, well, and, and you know, he seems to be carrying on his his whole administration through Twitter
3: well yes but is it when he this is a side issue but if he says you should fire that the Attorney General should be fired. Is that a directive from the president on Twitter, or is he just, you know, saying things things that are on his mind? And uh, so there's a genuine set of issues relating to the use of Twitter. But here's moving on to a second aspect here, and this is out of Terry Glavin's comment this morning in a column. He's put his finger precisely on why are we in the mess we're in, and he points out that yes, we did do something on Twitter. But then social media inside Saudi Arabia picked it up, and it was spreading rapidly. So this became the threat to the Saudi state that led to the reaction against Canada. And I think uh, if there's a single bumper sticker, if we had to summarize the Saudi position now that's become very clear, is that they plan on suppression of activism at home and suppression of criticism by batting Canada around abroad.
0: Because the initial tweet, I don't want to be dismissive of it, but it was really pretty benign, wasn't it? And and when things of that ilk have been issued in the past, uh, other countries, including Saudi Arabia, have just said, yeah, yeah, well, it's none of your business, so just move on.
3: Yes, and that certainly has been the norm. In fact, one of the interesting dimensions of this, is, uh, to me, is that it has grown. It went beyond the initial reaction, as you pointed out in your introduction, to an ever-widening campaign against Canada, by Saudi Arabia and they are calling on their uh, allies to join them in a campaign against Canada. This is something of an inflection point in world politics. Uh, the Arab League and and uh, the Palestinian Authority and Jordan and a number of other countries have now stood forth uh, with with Saudi Arabia saying yes, we stand with them. And what is Saudi Arabia saying? Yes, we are major human rights abusers and we also are unreliable business partners, and that's what the allies <laughs> are lining up as a branding exercise for Saudi Arabia. It's certainly a change, and I think in the long term it's a real danger to them.
0: But it, does it suggest this, this overreaction that they've gone through and, and continue with Elliot? Does it suggest that there's maybe a lot more unrest in Saudi Arabia than we, we may understand and realize?
3: Oh yes, I and I, I think that's really why we're in the mess we're the situation we are in that activism at home remember this young prince who's in charge of both domestic and foreign policy is, is embarking on a huge renovation of Saudi Arabia he's got a 2030 vision and he's he just was on a charm offensive around the world saying i'm modern i'm transforming the place i'm going to let women drive i'm going to open up cinemas and i'm going to now spend a, a lot of money and you can come and bid on it in on infrastructure, we're getting off oil as our only source, etc. That charm offensive again, talk about a branding exercise that just uh, was a short time ago, and now he's come out with this kind of action. The all that does is make us take a closer look. You know, we just had Freedom House, which monitors every year, they put out a, a, a yearly report on the state of democracy around the world. And they have at the bottom something they call the worst of the worst, and Saudi Arabia is on that list, in a sense that part of the dirty dozen. Uh, they don't call it that. The worst of the worst. And in the middle of this crisis, as it's been building up, and, have, and Saudi Arabia is saying, you know, we're not going to be treated this way, or this is, and, and, you know, they crucified they crucified a prisoner. They executed him and crucified him. And we are very paying attention to bring this back to Canada precisely because Raif Badawi, a blogger there, a young blogger, has been arrested and gained international rep- uh, uh, I guess, recognition uh, when the Saudis <laughs> put him in jail for 10 years and a thousand lashes was the punishment, and they did administer 50 till it was filmed and went viral and they backed off a bit. So for some reason, the Saudis now want to say our past history, of doing things quietly and being part of the Western world, and and uh, you know, just let us be, and we'll sell you oil, and we'll buy your arms. That's been a successful strategy for Saudi Arabia till now. Now they are using Canada as a um, as a whipping boy, is telling the outside world, no matter what we do at home, you can't uh, criticize us. Well, uh, that just draws attention to what they're doing at home.
0: You mentioned what you know the, the Saudi call by, by the Crown Prince obviously to get the Arab League in league, in concert with him. But I, I guess the one that concerns me though, Elliot, is is the other side of that coin. Canada's allies, the other members of the G7, the United States, France, the UK, and things of that. Why, why are they so quiet on this? I mean, clearly they know what's going on in Saudi Arabia, but they don't seem to want to get involved in this.
3: They're still in what I'm now beginning to start to call the old model of Saudi um, Saudi branding in the world. The old model as I've suggested is do anything they want at home. Remember, this is a state that has, oh, a 5,000-member class of the royal family that rules the state. I've got a, a close observer of the scene who says, you know, Saudi Arabia isn't a state. It's a property, <laughs> a property of the Saud family. Uh, and um, it's a fragile state in a lot of ways. Their old model was uh, just, you know, we have so much money that oil really is underlying just about everything to do with the Middle East so just we will will be good partners for you overseas leave us alone at home and now they're saying never mind we don't mean that anymore now we're saying very loudly uh we're going to punish they did this with Germany they did it with Sweden we're now going to change our behavior so the comments the silence were the silence you pointed out is related to the fact of that the existing model is they are just so powerful in terms of oil that will let them get away with things without, without saying much of what they're doing at home. But the Saudis are making it harder and harder to go to, with that old model. The more they punish Canada, the more they draw attention. In a sense, entering a new phase of their international relations, the more they draw attention to the fact that they are the worst of the among the worst of the worst on human rights abusing.
0: And, and that's acknowledged generally. Just nobody seems to want to speak up. But Yet we did.
3: Bill as well. They're now announcing their unreliable business partners. They're announcing that they are uh, human rights abusers on a major scale. Look, everybody, pay attention to us. That's what they're saying right now. And we're unreliable business partners. We're going to violate existing contracts. We're going to change our behavior economically toward a state where it's very easy to do, Canada. But that's a message.
0: How do we get out of this? Uh, You know, the Prime Minister's already gone on record as saying he's not going to apologize for for the comments that were made. And I, I don't think he should. But at the same time, you know, this is, this is an untenable situation. There's, there's got to be a resolution somewhere.
3: Yes, one of the striking things, uh, the commentary so far about the prime minister is, you know, he's, he's just uh, asserting Canadian values. and it's, But the striking thing to me, Bill, has been the muted response publicly by Canada. So how do we get out of it? Clearly, the foreign minister, and remember the prime minister didn't speak for days after this started, are trying to keep this a low-key matter and work behind the scenes with friends and allies to find a way to meet to, to uh, reduce the, the tension. But we're not going to fire, I don't think, we're not going to fire our foreign minister and say we're sorry.
0: Yeah, which is obviously, I mean, these, these guys have drawn a line in the sand right now and saying, you know, we want an apology and or that we're going to continue to do this. There's, there's got to be some, I would think, some back-channel ways to try to find some sort well, of a resolution. I, I
3: those are well underway, now, whether they're successful or not. Part of this is, you know, a broader pattern, as others have pointed out, of kind of rambunctious and, um, um, I don't know how quite gently to put it, but uh, less than thought through foreign policy behavior. The young prince... Is trying to be a transformative leader. It's a high wire act. So he has. uh, I mean, it's rather rich to accuse Canada of interfering with the tweet into the sovereignty of Saudi Arabia when they are uh, doing what they're doing under his direction in Yemen, a disastrous uh, civil war started by Saudi Arabia for what they considered their their national interest, but it's it's going very poorly. And the humanitarian side of it should tug at all of our consciousness and they've taken on Qatar. And so they have a very um, broad-ranging change in their how they do their foreign policy. It's sometimes cons- called impetuous and not thought through, and it's certainly possible that's part of what's happening here.
0: Well, that's part of the, uh, the irony, I guess, of this situation. I mean, the government took a lot of heat uh, for the armored vehicle sale to Saudi Arabia right. some time ago and, and tried to defend this, and notwithstanding the human rights violations, exactly. not knowing, of course, that this was going to come back and bite them.
3: And this is, in a sense, the old Saudi model. So will the old Saudi model prevail because the rest of the world likes it that way, in a sense? You know, let's just be quiet about what goes on at home, and let's keep on and carry on with business. And the word oil should always be used when we talk about Saudi Arabia and its role in the world. In fact, not just Saudi Arabia, but Venezuela and, and uh, Iran and so forth. Oil, is a big, oil has deformed, in a sense, the, the governing structures of, of the Middle East. In of Venezuela, but that's another story. So what what we have right now is a situation where Saudi Arabia has said we are not going to accept anything like criticism abroad. Again, the bumper sticker for here, the, the, the summation of what we see in front of us is they're saying we are going to suppress activism at home and we're going to reject criticism from abroad. And Canada is being used as a... Um, as a way to implement that policy,
0: and you got to wonder what's the, the offshoot here in Saudi Arabia itself. As you mentioned, you've got a, a prince who's trying to make a name for himself internationally, not just uh, uh, you know internally. But at the other end of the spectrum, uh, you have to wonder about the insurrection that's going on here, and it's not just about human rights and civil rights, uh, and and how tenable that hold is. You mentioned the family obviously is not going anywhere, but we didn't think anything was going to happen uh, when the Arab Spring occurred either, and it certainly did.
3: Well, the Arab Spring is, is, uh, is, I think, part of the backdrop of what we're seeing with Canada right now. Again, because there's great concern about activism at home. The Arab Spring overthrew a number of well-entrenched autocracies. It became a threat to the remaining well-entrenched autocracies, including Saudi Arabia, which took a number of steps, primarily financial, using their, their money to buy off their population and keep them quiet and to promise a brighter future through the transformation that the that the young prince is pursuing. And that's that's the kind of the domestic deal that was struck. The, uh, he also pushed back against the Wahhabi religious establishment, which I think is extremely risky for, for the monarchy. But that's his choice, and that's how he's pursuing it. It's a high-wire act, and we are collateral damage.
0: Elliot Tepper, uh, always a pleasure, Elliot. Thanks so much for your time and for your perspective on this today. Oh, you're very welcome, Bill. I hope we talk again soon. Uh, Of course, Elliot, uh, Professor Emeritus uh, of Political Science at Carleton University. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from
2: 9 to noon on 900 CHML.